you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming to you with another great podcast. Who knew this was going to happen again? Almost a thousand episodes, and we're just like, ah, let's do one more. Do another podcast. What the, what's going on there? Today, we have an amazing guest on the show. Before we get to her and her amazing book that's just just killing it on the charts right now you want to check out the video version of it because the video the itunes thing is nice but really watching the video is so much more interesting at least if you ignore my half of the video you'll be yeah, that's usually what most people do but there's so much more you can take and do plus you can see all the different reviews and everything we do on the chris voss show go to youtube.com chris voss hit the bell notification it's free for an unlimited time you want to get on that deal what's still available also go to goodreads.com for chess chris voss you can see all the books reading and reviewing over there as well also go to all the groups we have on facebook linkedin twitter instagram tiktok i can't even keep up with the where all the cool kids are at nowadays but you can go see all the things the show is doing over there as well so we're excited to announce my new book is coming out it's called beacons of leadership inspiring lessons of success in business and innovation it's going to be coming out on october 5th 2021 and i'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book it's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories lessons my life and experiences in leadership and character i give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneurial toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold, but the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book. And for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, Different collectors, limited edition, custom-made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me. There's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com. So be sure to go there, check it out, or order the book wherever fine books are sold. Today, like I mentioned, we have an amazing author. We just go to the Google machine. We type in amazing authors that are just blowing up the world. And uh, they come to us and we go, hey, get that person on the show. And we have one of them. We, we caught one today. It sounds like we're fishing or something. I don't know what that's about. She is Dawn Turner. She is the author of the newest book out, Three Girls from Bronzeville, a uniquely American memoir of race, fate, and sisterhood. This book just barely came out on September 7th. So it's still just coming right off the presses and you can take advantage of it there. And uh, data that we have on her. Let me see if we can get to her bio real quick. We got uh, a few different emails open here. She 
is an award-winning journalist and novelist. She's a former columnist and reporter for the Chicago Tribune. I'm thinking of pizza now. Uh, Turner spent a decade and a half writing about race, politics, and people whose stories are often dismissed and ignored. Turner, who served as a 2017 and 2018 juror for the Pulitzer Prize in Commentary, has written commentary for the Washington Post. PBS NewsHour, CBS Sunday Morning Show, NPR's Morning Edition Show, and the Chicago Tonight Show, and elsewhere. She's held fellowships at the Maynard, Maynard, Maynard Institute for Journalism Education. You can tell I didn't go to college. Harvard University and the University of Chicago. Welcome to the show, Don. How are you? Yay. I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. Maynard mm-hmm. Institute. One of these days I'm going to college and I'm going to learn something. Welcome to the show. Congratulations on the new book. This is awesome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. We're happy to have you. And tell people where they can order the book for you and any plugs you want. Are you on Instagram at all or anything like that? That's... I am on Instagram. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And you can get the book. It's widely available at your local, your neighborhood independent bookseller, as well as Amazon and um, Barnes & Noble. So you can find it many different places. Ordered the Dern book. I didn't get into Instagram much. And then all the authors that came on the show, they're like, Instagram's really good for authors. And I'm like, we should be over there more. So there you go. What motivated you want to write this? The book is the story of three girls who start out in virtually the same place with very similar aspirations and wind up taking wildly divergent paths. My sister Kim, my best friend Deborah, and I came of age in the 1970s in the afterglow of the civil rights movement. It was a moment when our parents believed that this country would finally be amenable to affording us the opportunities that it had denied generations of Black folks. And our parents would soon be disabused of this. But in that moment, they set their sights on promising futures for their daughters. We would go to we would go to college. We would have um, great paying jobs and we would become homeowners and partake of every aspect of the American dream. But for Kim and Deborah, that dream would prove elusive. And they were my first great loves. And I set out to understand when did we lose them? What happened? And that was the motivating force behind the book. When did we lose them? Now, you're one of the three girls, is that correct? Yes. Just to clarify that, because it is a memoir, but I wanted to make sure people understood that. So it's a journey of uh, going through life and where you end up in life. Is that maybe uh, somewhat of a summation? Uh, Yeah, it's because we all know this is a universal story in that we all know people who started out at a certain place and there was so much promise before them. And they land in some place completely unexpected. So they didn't expect to land there. And people watching them who love them, care for them, they didn't expect that as as well. And so that is, it's a story of our divergent paths. Mm -hmm. And um, I have to say, Chris, that I had been reading books for years about men who who have different fates. I don't know if you've read The Other Westmore, which is fantastic. It was published in 2010 by Westmore. There's another book um, called The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, also just amazing. But there were so many of these books about men whose paths diverged. And I hadn't read anything about women and certainly nothing about black women. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle is a uniquely American story about race, fate, and sisterhood. And you talk about the junction of not only your lives and these girls' lives, but you know what's going on in America, not only in your youth, 
the promise or the hope or promise of a new dream and generation. If James Baldwin, of course, is iconic in his words of reminding us that it, it, what he said is still true today. And we, we just haven't fixed so many different problems and issues that we have in, in America and our culture. And so it's interesting to me because you've tied that all together in the book and put that forward so that people can see that it's just not about people. This is an American story. This is this is the intertwining of everything when it comes to our lives and culture. Is that The story is about people, but it's also about place. Mm-hmm. And it's set in a neighborhood in Chicago called Bronzeville. And Bronzeville um, was the city's, the cradle of the great migration. And it's the story of people coming, black people coming up from the South to mm-hmm. escape the ravages of Jim Crow and coming to Chicago and being forced to live in a very confined space. And you had so many people packing into this area and it did begin to expand, but there were so many, there was so much decay that resulted in having so many people in one area. And that is something that transcends race. And you see this all the time in different places that what, what happens is that the, 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 the places, the, that the inst- institutions tend to, to fail, such as garbage pickup and the street lights aren't fixed correctly. Then the areas are often over policed or under policed. But what was so fascinating about Bronzeville is that there were so many different classes of people and you had so much innovation and a drive toward excellence. Ida B. Wells, the great anti-lynching journalist lived there. Gwendolyn Brooks, the first black person to win the Pulitzer Prize live there. Dr. Daniel Hell Williams, the uh, heart surgeon who was the first surgeon to perform the, the first successful heart surgery, lived there. So you also had the Chicago blues and um, gospel music had its birth in Bronzeville. And so this is the, so when I talk about this being an American story, you see the tragedy, redlining, restrictive housing covenants, but you also see a group of people who continue to chase the American dream. And, and that is our, our American story. All yeah. of it. You know, in fact, didn't redlining come out of Chicago? I know that it started from the it started in the 1930s, a banking Mm -hmm. policy. And the federal interestingly, the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago just did a study showing that those 1930s policies, you can draw a a straight line from I mean, between that time and the the black white disparity in home ownership and home Mm -hmm values. There's about, about, I think they said about nearly half of that disparity is attributed to those policies. So where exactly they started, I know that it had an incredible, incredibly strong foothold here in Chicago. Yeah. I had a mortgage company for 20 years and they would teach us about redlining. And I'm like, yeah. Jesus, are you serious? I know when we had Eddie Glaude Jr. on the show, we talked uh, in yeah. length about how one of the problems we have with our culture and societies, we're so separated in our neighborhoods. And part of that comes from that redlining. In fact, freeways were built to to separate our neighborhoods. And because of that, we don't know each other well and integrate well. And therefore, that's one of the reasons we still have these strifes with race and, and racial division. And well, then... I, I'm sorry, go, on. go ahead. Yes, that's part of the social aspect, but there is a very clear wealth aspect too, because mm-hmm. a lot of people hold their wealth in their homes. And if you 
don't have the ability to become a homeowner, it doesn't just affect you um, and, and your family, but it, it affects generations. And so when we talk about generational wealth, this is a huge disparity that is that that has clear social impacts, but also financial impacts as well. Mm-hmm. And you led me into my next question that I had set up for you. You talk in the book about uh, this issue of housing. And one of the one of the racist tropes that they have of black people burn their own neighborhoods. Talk to a little us about uh, that and the perception of that, what the reality is. Yeah, I, Deborah Kim and I grew up in the Theodore K. Lawless Gardens apartments. And these were, this was a complex that was developed by a black dermatologist, Theodore K. Lawless, and by the famed black publisher, sorry, John H. Johnson. And there was another, uh, a black dentist. His name was, his last name was Walker. And they conceived this place that would, in today's parlance, we call it affordable housing, but it was a beautiful, beautiful development with uh, manicured lawns and you had these three ivory towers and ivory just in terms of the color. You had colorful playgrounds and it was absolutely a beautiful place in the beginning. And so as part of what our parents thought our promise was as these kids coming um, up in the afterglow of the civil rights movement is that we needed a decent, a beautiful place to live. And that was Lawless Gardens. My mother would later say the name isn't the best for a black, but the conditions were just beautiful. But right across the street from us was a public housing project that had a beautiful name because it was named after Ida B. Wells. But when we had begun to, when we were growing up in the the 1970s, the housing project had begun its slide. There was decay everywhere. It It was becoming a very tragic place to live. And so what became very clear to me is that just from looking looking at the community from across the street and even hanging out over there from time to time that that when people live in squalor when as i said earlier when garbage isn't picked up regularly when street lights aren't replaced and when you have you ha- there's so few there's there's so little there's so few opportunities then people begin to they begin to have that be a part of who they are and so when something happens when there is an uprising and when people say, why do poor black people burn down their communities then I think what isn't understood is that that there are people who do not feel like they have a stake in the community and especially when they can look maybe a mile away and see that there is another community that is functioning in the way that communities are supposed to function. And so if you feel like you don't have a stake in, in your community, if you feel like you have nothing to lose, then you begin to act that way. And you can see that the city is doing their own racial racial prejudice where they're 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 in those nicer communities, they're functioning well and picking up garbage and replacing street lamps, but they're not taking care of other areas that clearly there's something going on there. Absolutely. I, I think that it's this issue that begins to feed on itself. Mm-hmm. That So you ask, well, which comes first? What I have seen, and, and I have to say, just as an aside, I remember in 2005 covering Katrina, Hurricane Katrina. And when there are a lot of people who were put into, uh, they were displaced and they were corralled into one of the, the stadiums down there. 
And you could see clearly that after there were so many people in this small amount of space, and it was fairly temporary. I mean, people didn't know what their homes were like, but they knew they had to get to safety. And But after a couple of days, the conditions began to deteriorate more and more. And these weren't just Black people. These were people who were uncertain about their future. They didn't know what was going, what was coming up. And they didn't have many resources in that moment. And so I guess what I started to see in 2005, but I also started to see this last year, at the beginning of the pandemic, that there, that conditions, the conditions that we're in, they really do begin to shape us. And that does not take personal responsibility out of the equation. But I think that it's that I think we as a, a culture or society have to begin to see it as a combination of things. And if we do, we get to be more empathetic. Yeah, I think me and Eddie Glaude Jr., we talked a lot about how do we unravel this? Because when you really look at systematic racism and oppression and, and what this country was sadly built on for 450 years or however long it's been coming, going back to the original lie of the shining uh, city on the hill quote-unquote. It, it's just, it's extraordinary. And trying to unravel it is the hardest part to do when you understand how integrated and just just the wires that, that are through everything. You just, you just start yanking and there's more. But you, you bring up a good point, to your point, that understanding this all, educating ourselves and being aware of it is a good step in the direction of being able to solve it. You, you talk about the war on drugs, of course, that was created by the Nixon administration. They've been very overt at saying that was a racially, that was a racial attack and destruction. The rise, you guys probably, I don't know if you talk about in the book, but of course, the Reagan era things where they took away a lot of social services and then, of course, increased policing, which just destroyed a lot of communities, especially poor communities around the nation. It really was a racial attack, if you're familiar with Reagan and his whole setup. It just, it's funny how. I think Larry Elder supported him back in the day, and Larry Elder just about won California's yeah, governor. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I think this is important, and this is why stories of this are important. Your parents wanted the best thing for you. They wanted all three of you girls uh, to have access to the American dream. That's, I think, what most parents want for their children, especially those that live here or those that want to come here. Uh, where do things go wrong and, and what challenges happen from growing up in that community for the th- I, I think it's also important to just say that there there are young people who come into this world and there's so many strikes against them that they are almost predestined for something 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 bad and that always breaks my heart because they're maybe they don't have enough interventions or they don't that they're maybe their safety nets are threadbare but that was not Kim's and Deborah's story they both had as you were saying and I think most parents I mean that the dream for the dream as a parent is that your kids do better than you do and but Kim was when she was 17 she got pregnant and even though my our family said this is something that you shouldn't do. And she lost the baby and the baby, and that really haunted her and Mm. tore her apart. And she began to drink heavily. Mm. And so when she was 24, she died of alcoholism. Oh, wow. Jesus. And and then Deborah actually left Chicago. Her family, her her parents moved uh, their two daughters out of the city to Indianapolis, just as Deborah was entering high school. And so she was, she was in Indianapolis. She did 
fine in high school. But right around the time that, that she and I were talking about going to college, Deborah said she was going to put off college, which was a little, well, which was quite disturbing for me because college was something that I thought we both were, the three of us were headed toward. And so Deborah her life began to devolve. She got addicted to drugs and oh, no. she wound up um, shooting a man and mm. he died. And so she was charged with murder, convicted of murder and sentenced to 50 years in prison. Wow. She was from the outset supposed to do 25 um, because mm. it's a day for a day. And so she wound up doing 21 years in prison. She was released in 2019 when I went to pick her up along with her sister and her aunt. But the if I can go back a little bit, the three of us, I met my sister when I was three years old when my parents, our, our parents brought her home and she was uh, a mystery to me, headstrong, willful, uh, stubborn. And I met Deborah in the seventh grade. I was just mesmerized by her. She was the prettiest girl, in the, and, but she was also the one who misbehaved the most. And I was just attracted to her immediately. And she, like my sister, trafficked in trouble. But we became best friends and best friends in the third grade. And so with the two, with both of them, I knew them at their beginning when they were brand new and starting out when the three of us were. And so the story kind of, the story looks at the, the trajectory of our lives and how we started to go in different places, go in different, started to move in different circles mm. and go down different paths. And as the young lady who ended up in prison, how is her life now? Has she been able to reform or? Oh yeah, know? she's, mm. and she's doing exceptionally well. In fact, when she was first sentenced, the judge was the judge said to her that you, how you landed here, I don't know, but here we are. But yeah. she's, once she was clean, she was able to find herself and find her path. And she's now, she works full time. She's renting a home and she's, she's living life again. There you go. Now you're the third person in the equation. How did that turn out? We can know right now, but how, tell us what the journey was like. And one of the things that I did with this book that I didn't, it was important for me that this book not just be about two girls. So one girl talking, writing a book about two girls. I wanted to write a story that gave each of us equal, equal, will wait. So I talk about my missteps as well. As much as I wanted to go to college and I just, I dreamed, I literally dreamed of being on college campuses when I was in high school. And, but I got to the University of Illinois in Urbana and after my freshman year, I flunked out. Oh. Uh, and <laughs> I flunked out and not so much because I was partying, but I was protesting. And when you come home and say you flunked out, it doesn't matter. That be, that is the, that's the most important thing is that, okay, so what happened? And my, my former husband uh, and I, we were friends in high school. And when I told him that I, I got this letter saying that I needed to sit out a year and then I would have to go to some other school, bring my grades up and then return that I told David. And then David took me to, to, to talk to his parents. And I was reading this letter and I could not have been more depressed at that moment. That was like the most devastating at that time. That was the most devastating thing that had ever happened in my life. And so he had me talk to his parents and his father, his, I adored them. And his father told me, I, 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 he said, do you want to return to the university? And I said, absolutely. And I, t I said, but they said, I can't, you know, I can't come back. 
uh, until I've spent a year away. And he, and the, then he said, well, why don't you go down, go back down there and talk to the dean? And, and I said, but the letter says that this is non-negotiable. And he said, Dawn, everything is negotiable. <laughs> and, and I went back down there and I talked to the dean. And so the dean said, okay, the dean gave me a hard time, which I deserved. And he said, okay, then sit out for a semester. And that was still devastating, but it was less devastating. And I stayed with my father and my stepmother that semester. I went to a community college. And that's why I just, I'm so grateful for (laughs) community colleges. And I did my semester, got my grades way up, returned to the university and went, got on the dean's list several times and still graduated in four years. Yeah, there were other missteps, but again, what I, I guess my point is that I just really wanted to say that everybody makes mistakes, right? You do that's not true. get out of this life without making a mistake. And, and, that's, and the recovery is what's important. And that's the beauty of it. It's sometimes it's a painful beauty. You're going to fail. You're going to, the key is to learn from those things. And you learned a great lesson. Now, everything is negotiable. I mean, once you learn that right. lesson, I learned that in sales and that's wrong with this. <laughs> so where do you go from there after college? After college, I went to, I spent, first of all, I did a quick internship at the Chicago Sun-Times. And then I spent a year at the Orlando Sentinel newspaper in Orlando, Florida. Mm. And then, or, and because people told me, and this was something that was, that was important back then, but I don't think it's so much the case now, but because there were newspaper chains Mm -hmm. and the Chicago Tribune at the time was like a destination newspaper. And a, a lot of my, my mentors told me that, that what you wanted to do was find a newspaper in, in a company And then you could move around. Once in the company, you could move from newspaper to newspaper. And so the Orlando Sentinel and the Chicago Tribune were sister newspapers under the Tribune Company umbrella. And so I spent a year in in Florida. I I really didn't care for it because I like seasons. I love cold weather. I know I'm, you know, (laughs) I'm probably a little weird, but I, yes. So I spent a year in Florida and then came up to Chicago and and started working for the Tribune. There you go. I always like to say Florida is the Florida of Florida. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but it's really bad. Uh, no, anytime you you get bored, just Google Florida man and you'll have entertainment for hours. So you go back to Chicago and you get the wonderful pizza they have there. And nice people in Chicago too. It's just so nice. Sometimes they creep me out a little bit. I'm like, look, you got to back off of the niceness. Like it's, you're weird me out here, but they're really nice. Now, where are you from? Las Vegas. Okay. So that's probably why we're all assholes out there. So what can you say? But it's, I don't know where I'm going with this. (laughs) So where does your journey take you on from there? And do you put a lot of lessons from your memoir and the book or just your insights and your experience? How does that play out? The story really talks about, as I said, it's about people and place. But in terms of my career, I I realized that it was informed a lot by my relationship with Deborah and Kim. And so when I began to write, I was an editor with the Chicago Tribune for a while. And then I became a a writer, uh, a reporter, as well as a columnist. And so as a columnist, I got, and as a reporter, I got a chance to choose the stories I wanted to write. And I often sought stories about people who had undergone some type of major transformation Mm -hmm. um, or who had turned tragedy into triumph. And I know maybe that sounds a little cliched, uh, no, but, but I, I'm, just, I'm always attracted 
to, I've always been attracted to those types of stories. The first time I wrote about Deborah was that, first of all, I did, I'd never written about my sister in the pages of the Chicago Tribune, but I wrote about Deborah the first time in 2000, right after her trial and her mm-hmm. sentencing. And I wanted to tell this story and the, my, the, the editor at the time said, well, we write about people who have committed murder and people who were sentenced. So what makes her story? And that the, what made it different was that I had known her before all of this, before her missteps. And, and these were, as she would say, she made a horrible mistake. But I wrote about her in 2000, then again in 2002. But in 2007, I wrote a story about her graduating from college while in prison. And so the other stories had gotten a lot of attention with uh, readers responding in different ways. But the 2007 story, I, I just got this avalanche of email and letters. And then I realized the reason was because the first two stories were cautionary tales, right? Mm. Where you would um, take, you would show, show your kid maybe the story and you say, don't do this. But that, that third story was a story of transformation. It was her makeover. And people like the idea that you can change your life if, if you can do it before the clock runs out. And those are the types of stories that I have pursued because I'm just fascinated at how people, how they do this. We may have, there are a lot of people who, who have like mini makeovers. But then there are people who have these kind of full out where they, this transformation. And I just, I, I love those types of stories because it is not easy. It's possible, but it's never easy. So it, and that's, I think that's what makes it uh, so identifiable to so many people that they mirror it, that they go, hey, this is this is something. Those stories are, like you say, transformation or redemption. We all make a lot of mistakes in life, the more that we can count. And we need a whole other show for that, but a couple thousand shows. But we all go through those mistakes and then we all go, oh, man, how can I change? How can I be better? One of the things I didn't really learn until, I don't know, later in life that stories are so important from that aspect of where people learn from and sharing your journey, your stories. Cause a lot of people don't want to share their pain or what their struggle is. And they, yeah. Right. Yeah. Or they're worried about being judged. Mm-hmm. And I wrote being a man, we don't talk about our feelings much. And I had one of my first dog child die and I just got drunk that night and poured my soul on a, a Facebook post, uh, at how bad it hurt. Mm-hmm. And I thought, God, this is like way too much to be sharing about who, who gives a crap about me and my stupid life. And I shared it, but it helped so many people that I had people write me and say they, they were crying because they didn't realize they had gotten closure from their family members and other things. And so these stories, like the ones you've written in your memoir and, and you wrote about in the Tribune, they resonate with people in that way. They do. Yeah. yeah. And there, and, and you don't realize the, to which they will resonate, but they, yeah. oh my God. And for people, because we like to see ourselves, we put up all of these walls, whether they're mm-hmm. based on race or gender or ethnicity or just all of this, there are so many walls and then we can break them down a bit by sharing these shared experiences. Mm-hmm. I think Bobby Kennedy talked about it when he said, you know, each of us can make a difference and send forth ripples of hope that can tear down the mightiest of walls. And that's really, as a culture, as a society, what we need to do through education, reading books like yours, understanding people's life journeys, their challenges, and go, how can we make things better so that we, and it's a constant journey, sadly, we never seem to arrive at it and go, it's a perfect world. 
And I imagine as long as you have human nature, we won't have a perfect world, but we could sure try. There's a lot, there's a lot of distance well, we can I, go. I, yeah. And I think that there is a lot of work to be done and the, it's so important to, to try and mm-hmm. to make a difference because we can't afford to just continue on this path of everybody being in their own little silos and feeling also that there is this zero sum game in that if I win, then you have to lose. And that's absolutely not the case. Yeah. A rising tide lifts all boats. That's what I always like to say on the show. And so what did you learn about yourself? I learned a little bit about myself and I was reminded about my younger self when I wrote the book. What did you learn about yourself when you wrote the book? That's a great question because as I started to, one of the things that was incredibly important to me about this book is that I did not want to just write based on memory. So I interviewed so many different people and I interviewed a lot of people about my sister, about my best friend. And I also poured over court documents relating to her case and just had a lot of correspondence, letters over the years. And I would see things like, oh, my God, I forgot I said that. I forgot. So it's the, the whole the, the interrogation included me learning about my I, I, I learned that I'm really good at compartmentalizing. And so that when something is over, I pack it up. And this is a lot of us do this where you pack it up and you push it off to the side. And But when you have to go through this, and, and I'm so grateful that I did have the opportunity to write this memoir, because you realize that some of the things that you thought were true, especially stories that you hear over the year, and you, you've heard them so many times that they sound true, but you start to go and investigate all of that stuff. There's a chapter in the book that, that deals with my, my, my dad. My parents divorced when uh, my sister and I were very young. And we had to choose a side and we were team mom. And, and, but I didn't know my father very well. And he was always involved in our lives, but we, I just didn't, I didn't know his family as well. And so my father worked as a, a dispatcher or an overnight manager in a, at a taxi company. And one night in 2004, or one afternoon in 2004, I was researching a story and my mother called to tell me that my father had a heart attack. Oh, wow. And I, I, I was surprised at how, how I could feel it. And it was such a visceral feeling that, that if I lost him, there would be so many questions about him, about me that would go unanswered. And so I set out to spend Friday nights with him. So once he left the hospital, he was okay. He left the hospital. I spent several Friday nights with him, interviewing him, not as a daughter, but as a journalist, because oh, wow. I couldn't do it as a, I couldn't do it as a daughter. <laughs> uh, so I did, I brought my notepad, my uh, pen, and I met him at the taxi company and, and his shifts, he was the overnight manager. And we would, we just sat amid a bunch of yellow and red cabs in the garage. And I asked him, I asked him a series of questions from about March of 2004 until the end of July, because I had to go cover the Democratic National Convention in Boston when we first met Barack Obama on that national stage. And then after that, I went to the Republican National Convention. But it was that those months with my father and talking about learning about me that I really did get a chance to understand why I don't eat meat. I don't care for meat. But my father, this African-American man who came from the South, is, which is so rare, it was not his favorite food either. We had, as I said, I knew my dad, but I learned about my grandfather who bought 160 acres of land in the Mississippi Delta 
in the late 1920s. Mm. That was fairly unheard of. And just how much my father loved his father. And so it was just a, it was a rewarding, that's one of the chapters in the book, but it was, I got to see me in a different light. And that was incredibly helpful. Isn't that, isn't that so wonderful that we're able to spend that time? Most, more people should do what you did. I did some of that with the end of my father's life. He was having lots of heart attacks and seizures and we, you could see the end was coming and the time was near. And, and so I sat down with him and we cleared all the decks and asked him all the questions. And I did that with my uncle before he passed away too. Um, and got beautiful histories. And that those stories are just amazing. And you find out, I don't know what the analogy is, but there's something about knowing our history and who we are and where we came from that shapes us so much. And a lot of people don't really, a lot of people, especially when they're young, they don't care about that. I don't care about the past. But I think you reach a certain age where you're like, who the hell am I? And right. where did I come from? And, yes. you know, what, it what makes came you before whole. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's why ancient cultures and stuff, you know, always had the historians that would come in and teach people. You know, there was the old times where people would actually sit down for dinner and talk about history. Or I think a lot of Jewish folks, they do different things at dinners where they, they go around the table or something and share people stuff. remember. Yeah. yeah. And those memories are entwined with those lessons you talked about in the book. Sure. Uh, what are things do you want to touch on in the book that you think readers will really be? I've written two novels and I wanted to tell this memoir in the same vein as you would, you would tell a story when your child says, tell me a story. And I wanted it to be a story. And so it's not preachy. I'm, I'm hoping, and this is what people have told me, that it unfolds and it just as a narrative. And that's something that's really important to me. And that the characters who are real people, that they are not caricatures. They are fully realized. This is my hope. This is my intent. That they're fully realized humans. And I think that the, the, the main thing is that, because I've had a couple of reviewers say something like, this is a book about one person who succeeded and the other two who didn't. And that's not the purpose. That's not the point of this book at all. The main through line here is there, but for the grace of God, go I. Mm-hmm. And that, that what happened, that there's this razor thin margin of error especially when it comes to little black girls. You can go one way or another way. And even when you have parents who have worked incredibly hard to to guide and do and parent, that things bad things can happen. But so that's why it's very clear to me that this is not me judging them at all. But I'm very grateful for my path and I just wish that that theirs could have been different. Definitely. You look at the growth of, of people that go through stuff like that, and clearly those reviewers haven't gotten the message. One of the hardest lessons that I had to learn in life, because I was really destination-oriented and goal-oriented, and we, we must get to the end of the thing. And the hardest lesson for me to learn was it's about the journey, not the destination. And that's what those reviewers need to learn about. We had the the author, Nicholas Bucola, on from the fire is upon us, the James Baldwin, William F. Buckley debate. And I believe it was him who told me early on, he read that he had two black brothers, I think. And he read that one out of three young black boys will end up in prison. He's And he looked at his three, his two other brothers and said, which one of us? And that's a hell of an outlook to have yeah. it just when you're eight or 10 years old, that's a hell of an outlook. And it, it puts a, it puts a damper. It, it affects you. In, in a way, in your outlook and like you talked about in your neighborhoods and everything else. But yeah, people, th- that's the beauty of these stories is 
And I think a lot of people, you're probably getting this feedback now, they see themselves in their own lives and in the mirrors of their own lives and, and the journeys right. that they went through and they identify with it. Absolutely. And yeah. that's one of the most gratifying um, things about having written the book is that when people come up to me um, or send me an email saying that they see themselves in our story or, or they see themselves in one of us. or So it's no, that's incredibly gratifying. You're right. Yeah, that's the beauty of these uh, books and stories and everything else. How does your sister feel about it in the family of your friend? Well, as I mentioned earlier, my sister passed away. Yeah. Yeah, and but Deborah and her okay. Deborah has not yet read the book, and but she was with me uh, in lockstep the the whole time during the writing process. If I had any question, if there was anything that I was unsure about, she was there uh, to help guide me. But she's very proud of the book. And uh, a couple of days ago, I did. I spoke to a bunch of women from an organization, this prestigious organization. Um, they're Black professional women, and they created or they commissioned a that is a, an interpretive dance of the book and we both Deborah and I both were just in tears watching these three young young girls dance and dance out the story dance out our story so that's also really gratifying just to see how other people interpret our my words it's amazing when you're in the writing process i don't know how your writing process was but in mine i was like no one's going to read this <laughs> There's always like, no fear. Is there, is there, yeah, you have that fear. You're like, is anyone going to read this crap that I wrote? I wrote some real crap in my, my life. But it's great when it comes out and people identify with it. And it helps uplift the world, hopefully educate the world, and leave the world a better place. Sure. That is that is the hope. And that is you want to make sure that there's – that because when you start, especially with a memoir, but I think it's with anything you write, you really put your heart and your soul into it. And then with the, with a memoir, you're going back into the – Path. There's a lot of excavation there. And you're, there are things that the, the way that we move forward is to pack everything up and push it off to the side, but then to run back toward that and then to open everything up again. It's just very difficult. I was lucky enough that some of the hardest ch chapters and, and clearly the hardest chapter for me, two chapters, was the when learning my sister had died and in the chapter of her funeral, I could not stay in my home office for that. For those two chapters, I went and spent a weekend with a friend and, and at least started to sketch it out and write that way. These things are just so difficult to write that you do. The prayer is that somebody will read your words. Yeah. And did it help with closure at all? Or you already achieved closure? Did it help? The, the it was cathartic. Yeah. There's some closure. Uh, I will continue to pursue the stories that I pursue, writing about the dispossessed people who don't necessarily have a whole lot of agency. So that will continue. And as I said earlier, I do credit part of the reasons, reason why I'm, I'm attracted to this because of Deborah and Kim. But in terms of this story, I really do feel like it's time, it's, it's time to put it to bed and that I know it's got, the book will be read and read, but I don't have to pursue this story, this mm -hmm. specific story again. And so in that way, it is, it has been um, cathartic. And There's kind of a nice comfort that comes over you that you go, all right, we got that on paper. That's yes. out there. That's in the history books. It would probably make a great wink to anybody in Hollywood <laughs> listening, but uh, there you go. I'd watch it. I, it's a beautiful story, and I love stories. He, I, like I said, I sadly in life, I figured out that stories were important. I wish I would have figured out them earlier. I'd always been a story collector. 
yeah. and collected stories. And but I didn't realize how incredibly valuable they were. And so hopefully that's a lesson people learn if they're listening. And and of course, pick up your book. Anything more you want to touch on before we go out? Um, I it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you, Doug. Thank you. <laughs> and we love stories and we love just wonderful literature that can share, change the world, make the world a better place. Give us your plugs if you want or wherever to buy the book as we go out. Yes, you can buy it uh, at your favorite independent bookstore and you can go online and at Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. So it is widely available. There you go. Order the book up, guys. It's uh, fresh off the presses. Just came out uh, September 7th of this month, so it's right there. Three Girls from Bronzeville, a uniquely American memoir of race, fate, and sisterhood. Pick it up wherever fine books are sold. Remember, only go to where the fine books are sold. Stay away from those alleyways with the broken glass. <laughs> you don't want to get the books in there. I don't know. Maybe. Or go to Amazon. Isn't that the same thing? Anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. We certainly appreciate you. Go to YouTube.com for Chess Chris Foss. See the video versions. Go to Goodreads. For Chess Chris Foss to see all the books you're reading and reviewing over there, but all the groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and all those crazy places those kids are at. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys next time. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneur toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold. But the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book. And for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, different collectors, limited edition, custom made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me. There's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com. So be sure to go there, check it out, or order the book wherever fine books are sold.